For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member bonus briefs, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening at 5 p.m. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com and select Become a Member. And don't miss our upcoming mini-series featuring interviews with some of the key players from David's upcoming book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another one of those special episodes of our podcast where we take a deep dive into a book that we think you really ought to get and read. By now, all of you, given what we talk about here, have uh, heard about, many, perhaps some of you have gotten and started to read The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021 by Peter Baker, who's the chief White House correspondent of the New York Times, and his wife, Susan Glasser, who's a staff writer at The New Yorker. But we wanted to give you a bit of more insight into it. And uh, we were fortunate to have Peter be able to join us here today. How are you doing, Peter? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, the book is a spectacular success. I I have to say, as somebody who has also just written a book about the Trump administration, which, I mean, I suppose everybody you meet can say that. And having spent the past two years researching this thing, I read it. And on page after page, there was a new revelation. It is I think 750 pages long, but it reads much shorter than that because it is so compelling and dramatic and sometimes comic and sometimes infuriating. Um, It's just a tour de force. So let's begin by that. Let me begin with the compliment, spectacular piece of work. But let me pose the the first question and and I can only say, you know I can't help but do this in light of the the work that I've been doing as well you know you talk about the divider the title you know talks a little bit about Trump's political strategy of dividing the country of not of not being unifying force but as somebody who's been interested in policy and process what struck me was the way he divided the people who worked for him in the government. Franklin Roosevelt famously said that he didn't want his right hand to know what his left hand was doing. I don't think it was that conscious in Trump's part. He wanted everybody to do what he said. But very quickly in the administration, 
there, there became a division between the people who were sort of inclined to say, yes, sir, and the people who recognized that there were some dysfunctional elements to this and who felt that they had to sort of run a parallel government. That's what my takeaway was in doing my research. I got it from your book. Was that also your takeaway? Yeah, no, I think that's about right. First of all, let me thank you for having me on the program today and congratulations to you on your book, which I think comes out in a week and a half or so. Is that right? Yeah. I can't wait. Yes, yes, I'm looking does. forward to it. <laughs> yes, 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 it does. As you know, the best day in, in writing a book is getting the contract and finishing the book. Publication day is never the best. <laughs> it's just too nerve wracking, among other things, yeah, right? Yes, ex- no, exactly right. No, it's good to have, as as every every writer has ever said, it's good having written and rather than. <laughs> and yeah, right, or, or having to write. I think you're right about that. I think you're right. What was striking about the Trump White House was how tribal it was, and it wasn't just. I mean, look, every White House, and you chronicle this in your other books too, obviously, and the NSC and others. Plenty of administrations that had cleavages. I mean, to think back to the, you know, Reagan era, of course, you had, you know, Jim Baker and Ed Meese is a topic and an area I'm familiar with from our book on Jim Baker. But none of them comes close, I don't think, to what was happening in the Trump administration. The, the, the differences were more pronounced. They were more, they were bitter, more bitter, and they were more fundamental. I think to your point about people who believe they were actually trying to save the country from the president himself, in some cases, on the one hand. And on the other hand, True ideologists who believe that uh, that Trump is the second coming of Andrew Jackson or whoever else they thought he was, and and therefore not only could not be questioned, should not be questioned. That was in fact what Stephen Miller said in one of the early TV appearances. His his decision shall not be questioned. Stephen Miller said, but of course it also was personality. It was also ambition. It was also you know quest for power. And it was, you know, a toxic mix of all of these things in which sometimes alliances shifted and changed depending on the day in which people could, you know, go after each other or, or, or try to save themselves. It, literally from the very start, people were being interviewed for jobs in that White House. And the interviewer, like Reince Priebus representing the RNC establishment crowd or Steve Bannon representing the Breitbart crowd or the Jared Kushner representing the family, you know, quasi-Democrats or what have you. You know, they would be interviewed and they would be asked, okay, I need you to come here and be loyal to me, not to the president, not to the country, but loyal to me because I'm already in a knife fight with X, Y, and Z. And so there was never a moment where in that people in that White House felt like they were pedaling in the same direction. They were always fighting with each other and to great consequence, as you point out. I mean, the notion that the president himself at least in the view of a lot of you who worked for him, was a clear and present danger to the country, raises all kinds of questions about what the duty of the people who work for him really is. It's true. And there was no figure that emerged. I I didn't find it in your book. I haven't found it in looking at it. Who was kind of that James Baker figure who, who was ultimately able to triumph over the chaos or impose order on it, right? Because Trump was constantly disrupting his own government. He didn't want order. He didn't want there to be a system or a structure. He hated the idea of it. You know, he asked one aide, he says, who do you report to? He says, well, I think I report to Reince Priebus. He says, no, you report to me. You know, there was, he didn't even know what his legislative affairs director did. 
When John Kelly took over as a second chief of staff, a retired four-star Marine general who thought he could make it a little bit more like the military that he had experienced, he discovered that the president of the United States was kind of disobeying the rules that, that Kelly had put in place and going around his back. Kelly would be trying to monitor his phone call. So the president had another aide go out to the Apple store and buy him a new phone that, that Kelly wouldn't know about. I mean, they, they literally, <laughs> he was constitutionally incapable of discipline and structure. And, you know, from his point of view, that's what had worked over the years. So why should he? Why should he make himself out to be something he wasn't? But it was the most extreme version of what Rob Porter called the ad hocracy. Rob Porter, of course, was his staff secretary. And his father, Roger Porter, had worked for other Republican presidents, including George H.W. Bush, as his domestic policy advisor. And was a Harvard professor. And at Harvard wrote a book about the ad hocracy of a White House, meaning the lack of structure at, the, at times when a president is sort of making up decisions on the fly and the consequences that that has. Well, there's never been a more ad hocracy White House than the Trump White House. And that was apparent from the very beginning, right? I mean, he, you know, he came in, he blew up his own transition process. And from the very earliest days, people I spoke to were kind of like, this was not like anything I've ever seen before. People who'd been in the government said this was not like anything I'd ever seen before. And it only metastasized from there. Did you find now, to, in 2022, any uh, resilient fans of it? Because it's, it seemed, you know, in most, most of the time you do these things, and they're different factions who want to influence the way the story is told. But you know, there's some loyalty. It seems to me that the group that exists around Trump, who were in the administration, who were loyal to him at the end, was pretty small. Very small. I mean, think of how many people who cycled in and out of that White House. We've never seen anything like it. The turnover was constant. It was, it was, and it was corrosive because, you know, nobody thought that they had a uh, a lease on life for longer than a few months. Even Steve Bannon told people at the very beginning, I don't think I'll make it past August, which is exactly, by the way, the month that he got pushed out. And, you know, I mean, Reagan had, I think, six national security advisors over eight years. Uh, Trump had four over four, and he had four White House chiefs of staff, and he had like six or seven communications directors, What, depending on whether you count the guy who never really took the job, but was pushed out before he even started it, because it turns out he had had fathered a child out of wedlock or whatever. I mean, there was constant churn and nobody, loyalty was a one-way street to Trump. It was the most important quality as far as he was concerned, but he never returned it to the people who worked for him. And he never, he was constantly berating. The people who worked for him constantly disappointed him. They never, from his point of view, did what he wanted them to do, even the ones who were the most loyal. Reince Priebus told people, he was the first chief of staff, he told people that Trump likes two kinds of people who work for him, the ones who used to work for him and the ones who are going to work for him. And you only achieved, uh, you know, wisdom in his eyes after he'd fired you or you quit. And then suddenly he kind of missed you and realized maybe you weren't so bad. And he would call up formers and say, well, what should I be doing while he was undercutting and backstabbing the people currently working for him? And you're right. The people at the end, you know, there were some true believers who really stuck with him uh, through the whole thing. Stephen Miller being a good example of that. But otherwise, you know, the people who were most troubled that we discovered in doing this book, 300 interviews after he left office, the people who were most troubled were the people who had been in the room, the people who had worked for him. These weren't Democrats. These weren't liberals. These, these were Republicans or Trump appointees who were telling us all the things that they found very disturbing about what they experienced. One of the things that you do best in the book is talk about the relationship 
with the Pentagon, the generals. And in an interesting way, this was the group that Trump rubbed most in the wrong way, right? These are people who came from structure, came from hierarchy, sought order. It's not to say they're a monolithic group. There are certainly some people in the Pentagon who are supportive of Trump. But when you look at Kelly or you look at Mattis or you look at McMaster, sooner or later, they didn't just find you know, difficult. They found it intolerable. And what's more, Trump showed remarkable contempt for them from that meeting in the tank, um, on, on, which was sort of halfway through the first year onward. And yet they didn't, you know, Mattis was kind of quiet about speaking out. And and I was just wondering what your view of that. I mean, people spoke to you finally. People spoke out finally. But a big question in an administration like this is, shouldn't they have done it sooner? It is a big question, and it is a recurring theme in our book, and I think others as well. You're right about the relationship with the general. It's so fascinating, right? He was initially enamored of the my generals, he liked to call them. He loved that they came from central casting. Look at Mad Dog Mattis. Of course, anybody who knows Jim Mattis knows he didn't like the nickname Mad Dog because that suggested he was somehow nuts, and that's not something he considered to be his calling card. He liked chaos, which was his call sign as a as a Marine, actually, I think. But he he termed it as, uh, you know, as I that's what I deliver to the enemy. I deliver chaos to the enemy. Not that he himself was a believer in chaos the way Trump was. But Trump ultimately sours on the military guys because, in fact, they don't match up to his image of, you know, doing whatever he wanted. That they, in fact, did have, you know, a credo that they did have a set of principles that were at odds with his view of how the military was supposed to be. These guys were offended by Trump, not just because he was undisciplined, although that was certainly a big part of it. They were offended because he didn't seem to subscribe to the very tenets of an apolitical military and a civilian-led government that you know has, under, has undergirded our system for so long. This letter that we obtained that General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, wrote, resigning, but never actually submitted, is an extraordinary document. We've, I've never seen anything like I've covered five presidents. I can't think of any parallel. Maybe going back to you know George uh, McClellan and Civil War or something, in which a general so directly takes on the commander in chief. Again, he didn't send it, but the just the words he used reflected not just his own views. I think, but those of the established officer corps, uh, in which he said to the president of the United States, "You are doing great and irreparable harm to the country." He said, you are ruining the international order. He said, you do not subscribe to the values that we as Americans fought for in World War II. That's extraordinary, right? That's not just, I disagree with this decision, or I think you're kind of, you know, you should have done this or that. That's that's a uh, an indictment, the likes of which we haven't seen from the military of a civilian leader in our lifetime, I don't think. But he didn't submit it. Why didn't he submit it? Why didn't they all speak out? In his case, he thought, well, I can do more good from the inside to protect the military, especially in these last months when he foresaw the possibility that after the election, the president of the United States might not want to give up power and might try to use the military to do so. And he was prescient in that regard. There was this, of course, five-hour meeting in the Oval Office and the residence of the, and the residence of the White House where Trump was actively considering martial law after the after the election, which I think Mark Milley would have resisted had it come to that. So you can argue, and I think people do argue, you know, should they have spoken out? Should they have resigned? Why should they stay? Each of them had their own line that they drew. Each of them struggled with this moral 
question of when are you actually enabling something that you disagree with and that you find reckless? And when are you, you know, obligated to stay in order to stop things from being worse? And that's a that's a through line that ran throughout this presidency. I think you're probably right. It hasn't happened in our lifetime. I think it happened just before, though, because I think MacArthur and Truman. MacArthur, perhaps, yeah. Had a kind of a similar. Yeah, the letter he the letter he sent that was you know posted while he was in Korea and the speech he later gives to Congress are pretty direct challenges of a sitting president. Yeah, pretty 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 direct. And what he said behind the scenes was apparently somewhat worse. But you know, one of the things that struck me more from doing a book about it, which is kind of contrary to the popular narrative, was that people kept coming in who thought they could fix it. And who tried to fix it. And and honestly, I found something kind of encouraging in that. I mean, there's a lot you can question about different people in the administration. I'm cabinet official, sub-cabinet official. Some of them were driven by, you know, ambition. You know, some of them had sort of wobbly principles, you know, and, and you can say that. The vast majority of the people I spoke to went in saying, I thought I could do more good being in than out. And they tried. And they came up with ways to do that. And, and you know, it says something about our country that they kept trying. No, I agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, obviously, you're right. There's, it, it's a mix, right? And everybody is at a different point on that spectrum between, you know, personal ambition and public service, right? And and some of them were, you know, that, that blend may have been more a little of this or a little of that. But you're right. I think broadly speaking, a lot of them really believe that they were, you know, that they had a duty to the country to keep things from spinning out of control. And that if they left, they would be replaced by somebody who would be worse from their point of view, who would be much more willing to accommodate some of the more reckless or unethical or inappropriate or even illegal ideas that Trump kept pushing. Kirsten Nielsen comes to mind, Secretary of Homeland Security. She became unwittingly the face of family separation because she she had resisted it, but then got pushed into signing it against her own judgment and then became the person put out front in the White House briefing room to defend it. And she will always go down in history that way and always be remembered that way. But at the same time, she felt like she was stopping a whole lot of things from happening that would have been worse. In fact, Trump would call her at six in the morning saying, do this, do that. And she would say, well, we don't have the power to do that. We don't have the authority to do that. It's not legal to do that. And he would just keep pushing. He would never give up. He'd call again at 11 o'clock at night. How come you haven't done that yet? He said these things so many times or he, that she joked with her staff that if she ever wrote a memoir, it would be called, honey, just do it, right? And But she felt like she was resisting some of these worse ideas. And if she left, the next person would come along and would be more accommodating. And she wasn't wrong about that. Uh, and she paid a price and she made a moral compromise in her own view, I think. And I think that's a classic case study of how you know Trump put his own people in these positions, uh, these sort of no-win positions. And everybody in some ways was compromising and trying to find figure out how far they could go and live with themselves and still accomplish something to, in their view, protect the country or protect the rule of law or what have you. Yeah, absolutely right. And she's a great example. Yeah, I've also talked to her a lot. Yeah, there are others like that. But, you know, one of the things that talking to her revealed was 
you know, there were certain issues that Trump was so neuralgic about that they couldn't even talk to them. And, you know, she and some others in the administration said, you know, we need to deal with election security, but he didn't want to have anything to do with it. So they set up a kind of a parallel process that cut out the White House, just, and, you know, Chris Krebs and the other, they actually played a big role in why 2020 was one of the most honest, clean elections that we'd ever seen. But this is also something kind of extraordinary, right? That there were processes in this administration that were designed, Russia policy very often, to bypass the president of the United States because they just thought he was too much of a wild card. Exactly. You could get some, what people said again and again, I'm sure they said this to you too, you could get stuff done as long as you didn't involve him. You know, that, that things in fact were possible to get done. Sometimes these are people with their own personal agendas, but a lot of times these are people who thought they were carrying out the best policy for the country. And I think there are a lot of examples of that, but they were afraid. They were afraid of this president and what he would do if he did get involved with something. And that's why you had the intelligence agencies were nervous about ever sharing with him, particularly secret information, particularly sources and methods where he could, in their view, indiscreetly just sort of mention it to a passing Russian foreign official right or uh, put it on on twitter or something like that and they would be they would be putting people in jeopardy so they in fact stopped telling him certain things that they worried he would expose to the public not things that he needed to know as president in their view but they wouldn't tell him where they got certain information from the way they might have told a George W Bush or a Barack Obama because they didn't think that George W Bush or Barack Obama were going to spill the secrets well, and also with, with the sweet, we, we don't know that he didn't. You know, today's, today's news story, as we're having this conversation, is among the documents that were stolen, taken illegally from the White House, were top secret documents pertaining to Iranian missile programs and China. And, you know, you got to ask yourself, he didn't do this accidentally. That thought went into it. He was told he shouldn't do it. Risk went into it. He did it purposefully. Why those documents? You know, so so that I mean, the, the, these issues loom still today. They do, and I think actually on this case, you're exactly right to point that out. The one thing we have not discussed in a significant enough way on this on this documents case is what was he thinking? What was he doing? What did he want them for? Right, we're out, we get distracted on this idea of whether you can declassify information by mental telepathy, and whether or not you know the FBI should execute a search warrant or not. And those are distractions in some ways from the central question was, what was he doing with them? What did he want them for? He hasn't given us an explanation. Why these documents? And why these documents? Why Iranian missiles or why China this, you know? And perhaps we will never know. One of the things that I was struck with was reading your book, and I've read so many presidential biographies and histories, is that almost always, not almost always, always except in this case, there is growth. In the presidency, there is this big learning curve. And we've seen it. You know, Barack Obama had very little experience. He, he fumbled. He got better. George W. Bush, first term, you know, foreign national security policy was a mess. Second term got better. You know, they sort of got things underway, you know, PEPFAR and so forth. Clinton was a mess the first couple of years, learns how to be president on the job. You've lived through this now through five different presidencies. But one of the most striking things about reading your book, as well as living through the period, 
there is absolutely no sign, no evidence of any sort that Donald Trump grew or changed in any way. Or did I miss it? No, I think you're right. I think you're right. He did not adapt to the office. He tried to force the office to adapt to him. Right. And I think, you you know, you're absolutely right. So uh, the five presidents I've covered, three were two terms, and all three of them, I would say, were better presidents in their second term. It's just natural that they would be better. It didn't mean they didn't have mistakes or make pretty big screw-ups at times or, or or have scandals. They did. Sometimes second terms are worse than first terms. But they were clearly more adept at the office. They understood how it worked. They understood what the choices were and how to make them, how to present them to the public. They understood the limits on their power, right? One thing every president that I ever talked to said is how much they were surprised at how little power they actually do have. We have created this mythology of the presidency partly because the media, and I'm part of it, covers it so intensely as if the president was in and of himself a king or eventually a queen. But in fact, there are limits on power. And that was one thing that Trump never accepted. That's one thing he discovered greatly bothered him, that he didn't have the absolute Article II power that he kept claiming he had. And the one thing I would say where he did learn was how to bypass the rules and the traditions and the norms that we have all thought were governing the presidency. So we have a national security official who spent a lot of time with him, we quote in the, in the book, he's comparing him to the velociraptor from Jurassic Park. The velociraptor is chasing the kids into the industrial kitchen. They manage to shut the door. They think they're okay, except that it turns out the velociraptor has learned how to turn the handle, right? Has learned how to get in. So this is the comparison is to suggest that in a second term, Trump would understand how to you to, to bypass the things that stopped him in the first term, how to get out of NATO, how to pull troops back from South Korea, how to close the border, things that where he was told he couldn't do. You know, he would find people who were willing to help him do them in the second term, even if they were not legal. And that's the one thing where I think he did change or evolve over the four years is he, he learned how to, to, to manipulate the levers of power a little bit more. So you had at the end of Mark Meadows, not a John Kelly, who would allow all these crazy fringe characters into the Oval Office telling the president of the United States he really won when he didn't, which never would have happened, at least if John Kelly had anything to say about it if he were still there. So a second term Trump, if there is one, he wouldn't have learned about healthcare policy or you know national security policy or anything like that. But he would he will have learned how to surround himself with the people who will enable him rather than frustrate him. You know, as I listen to you say this, I have several reactions. One is this is a post-traumatic stress therapy session. I'm not sure whether it's the stress that came from living through the period or from writing about it. Secondly, you know, you come to the same conclusion that I did, and which Maybe that shouldn't be a good thing in a book, or maybe it actually confirms that we're both writing about the same thing. But essentially, there's a cautionary tale here. This guy wants to be back. And if there was anything that he learned, it was, how do I get rid of the guardrails? How do we do it in the Senate? How do we do it with uh, the officials that are around us? You know, I'll go and I'll put in the Cash Patels or the others who I've, or the IGs that I think will be loyal to me. And there were a lot of people I spoke to in doing this, including cabinet secretary level people, sub-cabinet, who said the thing that worried them most as they got close to the election, closest to the election, is that Trump would be reelected because he would be unstoppable in the, you know, he it would be harder to counterbalance him. And, you know, we're we're 
couple of weeks away from an election. If the GOP gets control of this House and the Senate, you know, some of the things that he wanted are going to start getting teed up. And 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 I find that a kind of ominous without taking political sides. Do you share that the concern that the system may not be up to another bout with this? Well, I definitely think that there would be in a second term less constraints on him, right? Is impeachment going to be a check on him? No. He survived too. Why would he consider that to be something to worry about? Would he have to worry about running for another term as long as he didn't overturn this 22nd Amendment? <laughs> he wouldn't. He would be free of that, that consideration. He will have learned, and we want, watch what he did in those final months of his presidency. He got rid of people like Mark Esper and replaced him after the election at the Pentagon with a, with a defense secretary he thought would be more compliant. He, got, he tried to put Cash Patel in positions of extraordinary power, get rid of Gina Haspel as the CIA director, and maybe even find a way to put Cash Patel in there or at the FBI or what have you. He tried to get Jeff Clark as the attorney general instead of Bill Barr or Jeff Rosen. And you can certainly say that uh, Bill Barr was accommodating Trump for much of what he wanted to do for much of the time. But when it came, push came to shove at the very end, he says, no, this notion of a stolen election is BS and you can't use me and the Justice Department to justify it. Jeff Clark would have. So I think that you're right that a second term, he will be more adept at surrounding himself by people who will not tell him no and will not try to say, you cannot do this. This is illegal or unethical or inappropriate. I think this is a great book, The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021. But I pray to God you never get the chance to write a sequel. I, I think, you know, let's turn the page. Let's face some new challenges. But the reporting in it is absolutely spectacular. And credit to Susan, too, who's not here. It's, it's just a, it's a remarkable achievement. And so congratulations. Thanks for sharing the time with us. I strongly encourage everybody who's listening to go out and buy the book. And uh, hope to talk to you again sometime real soon.